Hello, crew world. Today is Wednesday, May 20th, 2015. My name is Luke Thomas. This is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat, episode 139, here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you for joining me. Today on the podcast, we will talk about, let's see, what's the big fight this weekend? UFC 187. It's finally here. Not quite in the shape that we had hoped, but pretty good shape nonetheless. Uh, we'll talk about all the fights on that card, two title fights, plus some contender fights on there. Um, a lot to still like on a card that was damaged by both injury and John Jones's buffoonery. So we'll get to all that. In addition, um, there's been a lot of back and forth this week between, well, I mean, they've only made one statement, but I mean, there's been a lot of talk anyway about Brendan Schaub coming out saying he was making six figures for sponsors, Dana White challenging that, Brendan Schaub not challenging that, but his friends, including UFC commentator Joe Rogan, essentially challenging that, as well as Brian Callen. We'll discuss what all that is and means. Uh, in addition, there's still been some back and forth between Ronda Rousey and Chris Cyborg. A bunch of stuff. I thought what Chris Cyborg said yesterday, what, what she wrote on Facebook, was like uh, insanely mean. Oof. Whatever the case, whatever you want to talk about, your questions, your comments, all the things that matter to you, we'll get to that here on today's chat. So, best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com, where this window is embedded. If you'd be so kind as to give it a thumbs up, that'd be cool. My knuckles are a show, man. Uh, let's see, what else? Spread this around. Today we have, since I'm in the office, the unbelievably barely potable, totally gross diet barks. Oh, man, that's the sound of heartburn. Uh, I'm going to drink this sucker, even though there's no caffeine in it. I just have a sweet tooth. Oh, boy. It's like gasoline and Splenda. All right, with that said, with that out of the way, let's get to the live chat questions. Thank you very much for watching. Remember, tell folks you're watching this. Share it on Facebook. Share it on Twitter. Um, wherever else you can spread it, please do. All right. Let's get this thing going. DC and Rumble, or DC versus Rumble, is awesome, but what's next? After DC and Rumble slug it out, who can really challenge for the title next? With Gustafson and Glover not happening, the only name that comes to mind is Bader. Do you do a Bader versus the winner of DC Rumble and then have Gus get a W in the meantime to get the next title shot after Bader? Um, I think there's still Rashad waiting in the wings out there, depending on how things go. He was supposed to have fought Daniel Cormier a number of times. Obviously, I don't think he'd fight Anthony Johnson. But if Cormier wins, that's certainly an opportunity for you. Although, you know, a media title shot seems weird, but stranger things have happened. I think Bader might get one, depending on how things go. Um I don't think that under any circumstance, at least very few circumstances, they would put Glover to share in a position to challenge for the title again. He only got it because of an incredible win streak and isn't otherwise marketable. Gustafson still has a lot of, I think, he may not think so, but I still feel like he's got a lot of win at his back in terms of being an entity the UFC can and be, would be willing to push. There's a lot of value to his name if for no other reason than it can help grow MMA in Sweden, which is one of the international markets that has responded favorably to UFC content right away. So um, I'm not exactly sure what they're going to do, but those seem like potential options. But like, if you're asking, generally speaking, would it be crazy for Bader to get a title shot? Um, it would not be. It would not be crazy at all. I mean, they've got you know 
a narrow window of opportunity to work with here. You got to work with what's there. Machida's at middleweight now. Um, Rashad may or may not come back. Uh, OSP sort of out there, but not really hasn't had that win where you're like that guy deserves a title shot. Bader gets there because he's essentially at the front of the queue. So not a lot of good options, but cross that bridge when we get there, right? Oh. Let's say Cerrone loses to Macdessi this Saturday. That seems unlikely, but okay. What do you do if you're the UFC? You think it's possible they go with a wild card and offer Frankie the title shot? If that happens, who would take a loss? Who would you take in a Dos Anjos versus Edgar title fight at 155? There's no way they're going to give Edgar that one at 155. Um, as my colleague Chuck Mendenhall pointed out, Faber just takes a lot less damage in this weight class. I think he's probably noticing that. Not, I'm sorry, Faber. Edgar takes a lot less damage in, this, in at 145 versus 155. I think that's probably important to him. Um, certainly, Cerrone wins. He's the number one contender. If he doesn't, you have to wonder. Let me pull up the rankings just to see who's who in the queue, even though the queue order is probably jacked up. Um, let's see. Who is that lightweight? So Pettis out, Nurmagomedov out, Cerrone, then there's Melendez, then there's Henderson. Yeah, I don't know. Michael Johnson sort of floating out there. I think Michael Johnson's sort of the next guy that, that they might try to push, depending on how things go. Barboza just seems untenable, as does Jury and Thompson and Alvarez. So, um, yeah, again, you get to the situation where you have at light heavyweight where it's like you get some retreads, you get guys who are respected, who have done well, but maybe or may not deserve such an elite prize or prize fighting opportunity. Um, but you make do with what you have. I, I find that to be terribly unlikely that he would lose, but stranger things have happened, man. MMA is a bizarre, bizarre sport. But I don't find that there would be any way. McGregor is in, excuse me, Edgar is in the queue for whoever wins that McGregor-Aldo fight. Depending on how that goes, too, that could be a bit of a wait, or he may find himself facing Chad Mendez. But to just abandon his featherweight campaign to do a lightweight campaign, even for a title shot, I don't know. I don't know how that would go. I have a hard time believing he would do that. But um, Dos Anjos versus Edgar, I would favor Dos Anjos. I mean, just the size differential would be too much for him. Plus, he can wrestle, and he can take a shot, and he can deliver one. I, I think Edgar would take a beating in that fight. Yeah, by the way, if you do that, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Because if you remove Edgar from 145 campaign to put him in the 155 campaign, certainly that frees up some of the ambiguity. But if Aldo beats McGregor and, let's say, does it handily, then you what do you do? You have Aldo versus Mendez for a third time. It doesn't really work out. You need, you need different permutations or options based on what could happen in that title fight, not just who wins and loses, but how they win and lose and in what way. Um, you would just complicate matters, I think, more than you would solve a problem. All right, Dana White denies UFC could have cut better sponsor deal for the fighters. Luke, what are your thoughts about how Dana White addressed Brendan Schaub on Off the Record? That's the Canadian TV show. Uh, is it just me? This is his words, not mine. Is it just me or is it Bush League for the UFC president to make fun of Brendan's sponsors and act like one of his fighters are crazy for making over 100000 in sponsorships? Um, I've thought about this a little bit. I've thought about this a lot. Um, 
some were making the argument that like why would why would White go out there and say what he did? Wouldn't that necessarily raise the argument that um, the president of the company was mocking the idea that one of his fighters could make that kind of a living? Um, and I don't think that's what he was trying to do. Now I may have come off that way, but I think what he was trying to do. First of all, he did not make a full-throated defense of the entire sponsorship program. It, 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 was, it was a partial defense, I think. Um, in my judgment, not particularly convincing, although you know, you may take your own opinion on that. But for me, we'll get to that in a second, but let's talk about the Brendan Schaub issue. If you took away from it that he was trying to say, or at least inadvertently may have seen, seemed to suggest that it was surprising that a fighter in his stable could make that kind of money. Maybe you took that interpretation, but I watched the video again. It's pretty clear that's not what he's trying to say. What he's trying to say is that it's ridiculous for Schaub to make those claims. I, I don't think he was trying to like mock the idea that one of his fighters could generate that kind of income. I really believe in watching it again. I've seen the, the clip now four or five times. He was trying to, fairly or unfairly, of course, he was trying to make the argument that, um, look, there's only a three guys who have made claims about the sponsorship deal publicly and not liking it, Tim Kennedy, Matt Mitrione, and Brendan Schaub, and let's read the list of sponsors that Brendan Schaub has. And so when he says, I'm sure that guy, sarcastically, is making 100000 it's really just about Schaub. Again, there's a bit of clumsiness to the argument that allows some people to say, well, why would you say that about one of your fighters? Um, and I can understand your perspective there. But so, no, I don't think he was trying to say that. I think it was really just about Brendan Schaub. And, and of course, you can understand maybe why. Brendan Schaub has had some success in the octagon. He's also had some pretty notable failures as well. He's had a bit of a mixed bag. And of late, it's not been the best run for him. So you can see why um, there would be some skepticism about some of the claims he's making now of course the larger picture is that he has a podcast and um you know is is uh has popular appeal beyond his actual ability of fighting um so that that was one of the takeaways that i had the second takeaway i had was that uh if you believe brian callen that even wasn't the that wasn't even an accurate list of shop sponsors now people have mentioned that he had mark echo as a sponsor well they're in bankruptcy so that's not the greatest sponsor in the world either but certainly it's a lot better than you know big rentals or whatever one of the other ones that was named brian callen and again i don't know if this to be true but brian callen had asserted that the list whoever gave a list to dana to read those sponsors it was simply an inaccurate list i doubt i doubt callen is that confused so we i'll, I'll assume that there's it's either exclusively or largely true um, my general read on that is that, um, you know, why would you disparage brands that are trying to sponsor your fighters? That's sort of one question that I would have, but that's, that's even not the question I would have. I think my takeaway there is that you can see why UFC wanted to do a Reebok deal, right? I mean, you know, there is just a certain level of um, unhappiness. I think that UFC management has with some of the brands, not all probably, but some of the brands that fighters are using to generate money. Now they put a limit on some of those things by having a sponsor tax. They don't allow for things like Holzer Reich or you know Condom Depot as a general way of sort of corporate governance. But that that to me was the takeaway is like you can see why they wanted to do the Reebok deal. They have a certain amount of disregard for some of what the more lower end sponsors are that 
fighters use in the collective whole to generate what is what can ultimately, ultimately be like a pretty decent return on their investment or or, or sponsor money. Um, and 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 UFC just has a problem with that. I think they had a problem a long time ago. One that I certainly thought and shared with them was that you know the gold dragons and the skulls and the flames. They really that made them nauseous. There was an article about that in Sports Business Journal right around the time of the Fox deal. And they talked about how much they hated it, and I, and I I certainly share their sympathies. And I I think that subculture has mostly died out in MMA. Um, and it was one I think UFC was happy to see go away. I also think that look, there, look, you you can understand the argument that the UFC is trying to make on one level, which is if we remove these other sponsors, this no ho hangover to the extent that it actually exists, or um, you know whatever the case may be, if we remove these sponsors and we put in Reebok, and then we and then we put in you know Fortune 500 companies on top of that in a very limited capacity. So let's say they put a, a Sony. I'm just making something up on top of a Reebok. You can see how, you know, one, they wouldn't be able to attract Sony without that. And two, how much more money there actually is to be made here. These are arguments that I don't think the UFC is, is wrong about. Um, these things are all true. The problem is that they're all happening, happening um, without the direct input of, of fighters. They're, they're ha it's happening for them, not with them. And so as a consequence, the deal could have, like, of course, had been totally different. Um, had there been their input, but there wasn't. So that's why the deal looks the way that it does. Um, but, you know, you, Dana White also said something I thought was kind of interesting, too, was um, he did say the deal couldn't be better, which is, of course, not true. It could be a thousand times better. But that, that, that wasn't what really caught my attention. He was like, God, I forget what the words were. But it was something to the effect of, oh, I think Michael Landsberg asked him, do you think you're screwing your fighters? And he responded, no, we're not screwing them. And, I, and I, I really would like to point people to that because I've made this argument over and over and over again. There's this belief out there, and I think it's really misplaced. There's this belief out there that the UFC is out to do their fighters wrong or that the, the UFC truly doesn't care about them or that the UFC uh, acts in total disregard for their needs. I don't think any of that is true. Or at least very little of it, maybe. I mean, you know, it might be some element of of that, but I, I I don't think that's the overarching motivating factor. I think they 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 do think they're trying to do something good for the sport, and I do think that they believe that this deal is fair and good, and I do think that they believe that um, they have a right to do these things. Right? They're not acting out of bad faith. The problem is, and I think what this argument illustrates, is that even in good faith, good faith will not take you to a place of um, equal mutual benefit. There is mutual benefit here, but it's not on equal terms. Right, So they are, I think they do believe, like, look, guys, we're, we got a good deal here for you. Like, you don't have to go out and get sponsors and you get all this gear, blah, 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 blah. Um, but, but whether or not that's what the fighters want or what the fighters think is fair, these are two different worlds. These are two divergent places, right? So that that to me was like when I when I watched the interview at first, I, I, you know, I had some different impressions of it, and the more I watched it, it was like I don't ever I don't ever come away watching this stuff. I know it's an easy position on the internet to take where it's like they hate you and they're out to screw you. I don't think that's true. The problem is not that it's not true. It's that uh, while being not true, 
good intentions are not the same as tough negotiations. That's just the, that's just the bottom line. Um, I'm never on my own going to give you what you and I have to negotiate for. You're going to get a lot more most likely in the other way, unless there's a sort of weird circumstance here. Right. But generally speaking, that's the takeaway. Um, so, you know, going out there and accusing the UFC of trying to do wrong by their fighters, I just feel like is a road is a bridge to nowhere. Cause I don't, I don't get that impression at all, but I, 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 and, and I think that changes the argument and it misplaces the intentionality. The argument should be focused on here are the fighters' interests, here are the UFC's interests, and there is a portion in the Venn diagram where they overlap. But there's a huge portion where they don't overlap. And to me, the most disappointing and bizarre thing was Brendan Schaub later on saying, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm Team UFC, and I and I. Certainly understand the motivation behind that. You know, look, he has a job with Fox Sports and some of his interests are aligned. But you don't have to be anti-anything to understand you don't share in totality similar interests. Your, your interests diverge from, you're an independent contractor. It can't possibly be that your interests are perfectly aligned. Without any malfeasance, Without any anger, without any attempt at wrongdoing, it's not possible for all of your interests to be co-aligned. It's not possible. There is space where through mutual benefit and coordinated negotiation, you can have massive overlap. But if the, do you think the UFC would take a situation where the fighters got to dictate to them the terms of some sort of new sponsorship deal? They would just take it? Of course they wouldn't. They'd say, no, we're going to negotiate this. There's no way we're going to accept what you think is good for us. It's, the, it's never going to happen. Nor should they. Nor should they. The UFC would be right to push back in that, in that circumstance. If the fighters were the ones who somehow negotiated this Reebok deal, they had some sort of association, they said, no, UFC, you're going to take this. Look, we think it's a good deal for you guys. We, you get this, 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 this. Uh, here you go. You think the UFC would take that? Not for two seconds. They'd have their corporate lawyers out there saying, no, no, no. We like some of this stuff, but we're going to negotiate the small details. And they would be 100% in the right to do so. Just as the fighters, if they could collectively get together and figure out something, would be well within their right to do that as well. And then, again, what is the best case scenario? The best case scenario is the handshake. It's the brand value of the fighters uh, working in, excuse me, it's the brand value of the UFC working in uh, with the supply content of elite MMA fighting. Boom, you bring that together and you got something special. And if all the parties can benefit, that's what you want. You don't want the fighters to sort of have the inmates run in the asylum. And you don't want a situation where the fighters have to be subject to uh, every single whim passed down from management, no matter who is running it. Not, neither of those situations are the best. It's when there's equal participation in decision-making, or at least you know, relatively equal. Right. I, I wouldn't mind if UFC had a bit of an upper hand. And I think I was thinking about this too. It's like, does it need to be 50-50? No. But I don't even know. I don't even know if we're at 60-40. I wouldn't necessarily mind 60-40 if you think about it. Right. Because someone I was thinking about the argument. If you have you have UFC and you have fighters, right? If you take fighters away from the UFC, um, you know, 
or let's say the elite fighters anyway. You could you could fill in back the product, but it wouldn't necessarily be the same. It'd be a much less product. It wouldn't be nearly as good, right? Um, but if you have the fighters and you take away UFC, at least the way the, the way the sport is coordinated now, you wouldn't lose the sport, but you'd get close. And so I think there is a little bit more value there in the way things have happened. Now, over time, I could see that reality changing a little bit, right? Uh, I could see the, the fighters asserting themselves more, becoming bigger identities, becoming greater signposts around which things are rallied. Um, but as it stands today, that's the power balance. Is that I think if you took away the UFC and kept fighters, what would you have? You'd still have the sport, but in a much worse scenario. Meanwhile, if the fighters walked off the job, and you fill them in with scabs, uh, it wouldn't be what the product is either. Um, but it wouldn't be, I don't think, nearly as detrimental in some in some capacity anyway. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Anyway, that was my big takeaway or several of my takeaways from that. Uh, also, I think it's sort of true at this point that, you know, Brian Callen, Brian Callen's argument was that if you look at the actual, actual list of shop sponsors, they're pretty easily clear six figures. He and Rogan have seen tax returns and documents. It's pretty clear that Shab was telling the truth the whole time. And so I think what I really, you know, just bizarrely wondering is like, you know, he just never, these fight. look, I've said it a thousand times. Everyone thinks it's the infighting. Oh, one fighter says sponsorship deal is great. Oh, next one, you know, doesn't. Oh, John Jones helps cancel UFC 151. And some people hate him. No one wants to back him. Oh, that's the reason why there won't be a fighters union. No, there won't be a fighters union because the fighters are, entirely unwilling to help make one they are and i don't know why it's surprising i really don't uh let's see let's see uh just one second i'm gonna pull something up here um i forgot i lost my train of thought uh christ that is what happens when you just ramble and meander in your own brain for a little while. Oh, about the 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 fighters. Yeah, they they um they they just seem perfectly unwilling to ever even assert their own value, right? Um, in in the face of of look, it's one thing if they personally insult you, you know, and you don't want to do anything about it. You know, that's your choice or not your choice. Whatever you want to do, you can you can respond or not respond. But when, but when someone makes an evidentiary claim about how the real world works, Brendan Schaub, you do not make this much amount of money. It, I don't, I don't, enti- it's not entirely clear to me uh, why that would not at least be a uh, challenge in some capacity. Maybe it's because he believes his interests are tied too much to UFC's discretion um, and he doesn't want to challenge that. If that's the case, that's another sort of fact about the industry is that there's just a lot of opportunities that are related to um, the UFC corporation and then the various entities attached to it on the outside you could make that argument as well but look uh I'm, I'm at the point now where i'm almost done having sympathy for him you know what i mean i i'm i am not suggesting that self-organizing is easy i am not suggesting that self-organizing doesn't carry consequences but what i am saying is it will you will not have your interests uh more fully taken care of until you do something about it and if that's how you want to be, the UFC is a business and they have to run their business and they're going to run their business. And they're either they can talk to you, your fighters as an organization, collectively working together, or they will make decisions without your consent because they have that right. 
and they're going to exercise that right. And if you don't like the consequences of that, but you're unwilling to do anything about it, that is the same thing as tacit consent. You might as well just consent to it. So if you're going to do something about it, then do it. If you're not, you have to uh, take what is given to you. And I get the sense that after one, one or two days of belly aching on Twitter, some are going to eventually seek out the free, the free market when, um, when their deal comes up. But I get the sense that, look, they didn't fight back when they lost their likeness rights on a video game. Why would they push back on, on, on sponsors? I mean, I guess they were never originally making money off the video game deal and then, then lost money. That would be the difference. But it's, it's immaterial. It, it just sort of it shows a, a, uh, either an inability or an unwillingness to, to act collectively for, uh, for uh, full-throated benefit. All right, Leona Machida versus Yoel Romero. Who you got? You think Machida's lack of scrambling, like he displayed against Rockhold, could play a factor against a high-level wrestler, Romero? It's a weird fight because you have to... The Machida that showed up against Rockhold looked old. First time I've ever said that, you know? And you were wondering when that was going to happen. You look at his age, you're like, 36, how's this guy still doing this? Partly it was because he never took damage throughout his career. So there was that. I think... Um, I think that's a big big component of it. But I don't know about how he's going to do against Yoel Romero. Yoel Romero is athletic and can uh, potentially strike first, given his, his, he hasn't, doesn't have as many miles on him. Who knows how old he actually is, by the way. I'm sure the records he came over with from Cuba are, are you know, totally inaccurate. But whatever. I don't know. I don't know if that was just one of the situations where Rockhold – made him look worse than he is or if the miles are catching up with him if the miles are catching up with him i really like romero's chances but romero takes a lot of risks romero does a lot of unorthodox things that leave him wide open to someone like machida so uh it's a really tough close fight i actually kind of like it for that reason uh alexander milianenko gets four and a half years in jail any thought on the news alexander will be serving a long jail sentence in your opinion what was the ceiling for a guy like this when he was fighting? Was he a classic case of how physical talent can only get you so far? You can never get to the top without mental part down. Um, yeah, well, the sexual assault charge is pretty serious. Four and a half years in, in a Russian penitentiary does not sound like a ton of fun. Um, what was his ceiling? Hard to say. You know, uh, that, that time when Red Devil was really coming up and making a name for themselves you wondered how far he could get. I always liked his boxing, but I thought he was really hittable. I didn't think he had the speed advantages that Fedor enjoyed. I didn't think that um, I didn't think he had the defensive awareness that Fedor had. I mean, Fedor got tagged a lot too, um, but you know, never left a lot of moments in a fight where he wasn't aggressively seeking some form of reversal or attack. The only time I ever think he was prolonged for controlled periods wasn't actually in the Mark Hunt fight, which he eventually won, of course. Um, Emilianenko or Alexander, I, I thought he had great boxing. I thought he had a great jab. I thought he had pretty good footwork, and I like the angles on which he used to turn. Um, but just never seemed to have the defensive instincts that his brother did and never just seemed to have the raw athleticism his brother did either, although he was pretty good, uh, obviously. Um, 
I'm trying to think of what was my favorite. Was it the Heratana fight that's my favorite? Which one was my, my all-time fight? He had a couple good ones uh, that were that are worth remembering. Also, there was a Sherdog feature on him years ago that was really great. Let's see. The Heratana fight was awesome. The Nastula fight was decent, although it was, uh, yeah, he never he just never really got very far. And by the time he would he wanted to keep fighting in stateside, he obviously had the issues related to whether or not he had um, blood that was, you know, whether he had hepatitis that would prohibit him from from competing here. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't. He just never seemed to cross any kind of level where anytime he had a chance to take that turn, he always sort of fell short about it. And as a consequence, he never got quite the same name. All right. Yeah, here's a perfectly good question. <clears throat> Both Cerrone and Shop have said that they will be losing money on the Reebok deal. Both of them have also suggested that they are willing to take one for the team if it means success for the UFC. As far as I'm concerned, this is his words, not mine. Fighters fight for themselves. They should not have to support a pay cut to help the UFC achieve its long-term objectives of bringing the sport into the mainstream. What is this? Do you think Cerrone and Schaub really meant what they said, or do you think they are just scared of UFC reprisal? I don't know. I am not in a position to speak for them. Certainly there is an unwillingness to speak, and you can draw your own conclusions about that, because privately they say an awful lot. Not these two necessarily, but fighters. Um, you know, look, though, I, it's partly a bit of a culture thing, right? Because... If you look at guys like Liddell, look, look at the guys who have jobs in the UFC who don't even fight, like guys like Griffin or Liddell or Matt Hughes, right? You know, I think Hughes talked about the time when he and Dana White sat down. They were like, we need a couple of guys who we believe in the talent, but who want to be partners with us to help us make this thing survive. This was back in the day when, you know, UFC was touch and go, man. Um, maybe Couture was one of those guys. For a time, I, I don't know. Obviously, in the end, he didn't turn out to be. But you get the idea. It was like, let's just focus on Matt Hughes. And I think guys like Hughes were up for that. They're like, look, we don't even know if this thing's going to work. We don't know how far we can go or how popular we can make it. But I will be the company man that this company needs to make the sport successful. Yes, the UFC successful, but without the UFC, there really would be no sport. I mean, if the UFC had died, what would really have happened? You know, it's a world I don't really want to imagine, you know. Um, so I understand I, in a, at a place in time, I can see how you can see how overlapping the fighters interests were with UFC, but now that they have had much more stability and, you know, mainstream visibility and financial, um, um, stability again, it's not clear to me that they have to, um, suppress their own interests to make the UFC's international ambitions or whatever the case may be happen. I could understand it back in the day. I wouldn't think that would be a crazy thing, but now it, I, it's not someone have to explain to me why that would be necessary that I'm willing to lose money for the UFC's benefit. You know, you get this much time to make money. You're going to just, you're going to, you're going to say, I'm going to take less and not work collectively to maximize my interests for the benefit of someone else. 
this is very this is very atypical behavior for, for professional athletes. Um, and one would, one would wonder what would happen if they had a fighters union, you know, would they be making claims like this? I find that very hard to believe. You look at how, I mean, the NFLPA fights tooth and nail over any suspension. They always want arbitrators or to take things to court to get even minor infractions halved or overturned. You know, this idea that they would take a pay cut. I mean, you got Odell Beckham making two and a half million a year saying this is not enough. And part of the reason why he's comfortable doing that is because he has support system in place should he need it. Um, but football players have also done the hard work of organizing, so they get to enjoy that. All right. UFC 189 official pay-per-view main card. Jose Aldo versus Conor McGregor, baller. Robbie Lawler versus Roy McDonald, baller. Dennis Bermudez versus Jeremy Stevens, love that fight. Gunnar Nelson versus John Hathaway, not my favorite, but not bad. Brandon Thatch versus John Howard, same thing, not my favorite, but not bad. What's your rating? Assuming the fights play out to maximum potential, I'd give that a A minus. People asking a-hole questions about Juventus. Well, that's a real tough one for me, you know. I don't know if I want Juventus to suffer because they deserve to suffer or because Barcelona is the worst team in the galaxy. I'm hoping they can just, like, play to the point where everyone on the team gets injured on both teams. Proof false. Okay. UFC 187 does under 500,000 pay-per-view buys. You know, I wouldn't have said so maybe last week. Um. Maybe it'll pick up tomorrow on Friday. You know, buzz always happens at weird times. I'm not feeling that much buzz for this one. Is it me? Could be me. If it's me, it's me. Look, I am not saying this card is bad at all. I think UFC 187 is a great card. I'm looking forward to covering it. You'd never hear me say that. Uh, and it's true. Totally looking forward to covering UFC 187. But I'm not, I'm not feeling a ton of buzz for it just yet. Maybe I will tomorrow. Maybe I will Friday. You know, I don't know. Um, so I'm going to say false. It does not do 500,000 pay-per-view buys or more. Mayweather versus Pacquiao generates more revenue than Zufa does for 2014 by a large margin. Um, not by, by a large margin, but it might. Arlovsky gets stopped on Saturday and retires. False. UFC Fight Night 66 ratings were a success for its early airing. I'm glad you asked that. The numbers were as follows. Prelims, 246K. Of course, they started it at, what, 8 a.m.? And uh, let's see. The main card was 575K. Well, look, it's funny how you look at that. I would consider that a success. I absolutely would. Because I think airing at 10 a.m. and peaking, I think they peaked somewhere just above 700,000 from that 115 to 130 portion of the main event. All things considered, man, that is not bad at all. Now, the question, though, is, is that enough exposure to then levy or, or make that a pivot point onto pay-per-view? I don't think so. And I will say this. This did not occur to me, but someone else brought it up. Uh, there's a guy who does, I think it's sports TV ratings, at sports TV ratings. He does ratings for all sports, including um, to the extent that it's on there, UFC and everything else. And he, he basically said that he thought the Golovkin ratings on HBO at night were much better. And he even noted, he goes, yes, the main card started at 10 a.m. on Fox Sports 1, but Fox Sports 1 is in 50 more million homes. Now, of course, if you're on HBO, you're on HBO, you, you, you purchase it because you are a diehard believer in their premium content. 
And so you're much more likely to watch what they offer you. That's why you purchased it to begin with. So you can cut it both ways, but the way he attributed it was that, I think he said something to the effect of, and I could be misquoting, but it's something like, you know, HBO cleaned the UFC's clock in, in ratings. I think it's a bit of a strong description, but it's sort of interesting to note that if you get outside the UFC bubble, what is the perspective, right? Um, I, I tend to think those are good numbers for all things being you know, considered. Didn't get a ton of promotion. Took place early in the morning, super early in the morning on the West Coast. 5 a.m. prelims on the West Coast. You know what I mean? Uh, 7 a.m. start time on the main card. That's, those are pretty good numbers. Someone is asking about, uh, been a long time coming, but is it now as good a time as any that the UFC is going to Seoul, South Korea? Super good. I can't wait for this. I asked Marshall Zelaznik about this maybe two years ago at this point. A long time ago, a year and a half anyway. When are you going to Seoul? I guess the issue was it, was, it took going to Brazil and putting on the Brazilian shows to get the, the video infrastructure in place to be able to broadcast out of there. I guess some of these, you know, Seoul is a totally modern city uh, with as many, you know, first world accoutrements as you could possibly want. But I guess some of their um, arenas aren't outfitted for the kind of broadcasting needs that UFC had, but they basically solved those problems um, through their push into Brazil that happened, I think, in what, 2012, 2013, and so forth. So um, so they got that worked out. And, you know, they've always had good, uh, well, not always, but for a while now, they've had really good television deals in South Korea. There's a ton of good fighters that come out of South Korea. So, you know, it's a country where it has strong purchasing power. They got a lot of money. Not Not a lot to dislike about that one. Uh, another question about Brendan Schaub and Dana White, although I'm not sure it's asking anything new. Uh, was Joe Rogan right in his assessment of, about Dana's comments? I'm not sure what you mean that by exactly that it didn't make any sense. Like that's what Joe Rogan said. Um, I mean, look, he's going to go. Dana White's going to go out there. And he's going to he's going to defend the deal, and he's going to go out there and and. Um, put forward the UFC's interests. It just is not clear to me why a fighter wouldn't do the same for their own perspective. Um, you know, I, I don't want to tell you guys, I'm like at the point now, man, where it's almost like, I just don't care if the, if, if the fighters, uh, that's not true. I don't want to go out there and say that, but I am very unwilling to give their situation much more sympathy if they're going to go out and uh, do absolutely nothing towards self-organizing. If you don't want to self-organize, do not complain about the Reebok deal. Do not complain about not having likeness rights. Do not complain about having your pay being broken up to show and to win. A lot of guys in boxing never get that. They get a flat fee. Don't complain about any of it because you are enabling it. You are the ones that are making this happen. UFC has a business to run. They're going to run it according to their interests. They're going to run it according to the laws of the land. And they're going to run it in accordance with what they believe is fair value for all the parties involved. And you can't blame them for doing that. If you don't want to get in the way and challenge that for what you believe is your fair compensation for any of these things, for the Harley deal, for Budweiser, for anything, 
then you do not get the right to complain anymore. Do something or don't do something. But if you're not going to do anything and you're going to go out of your way to actually like say your interests are aligned with them, then do not ever make a claim that you don't like the Reebok deal because what you're saying is it's good for you. If it's good for you, fine. But I don't want to hear complaints on one end and then on the other end, well, I'm just not going to do anything about it. Okay. Well, neither am I. So, all right. Uh, good question. Nevada Athletic Commission's new penalties for test failures are extreme to say the least. Yes, they are. I'm glad you asked about this. What is the likelihood that other reputable athletic commissions, so let's say New Jersey and California, will follow suit with their recommended guidelines? <sighs> Knock on wood, I don't know. We'll see. I hope they disregard all of it. It's it's totally – I mean, they are <laughs> – they are doing things that, like, I mean, does ISIS have punishments this hard for drug use? I guess they behead people, so maybe it's a little bit worse. It's just a shade under ISIS, right? I mean, so utterly draconian and backwards and flies in the face of uh, accepted wisdom on a number of these topics. Look, a couple of things here to note. Everyone's like, oh, well, the PED stuff is fine. It's the weed stuff. I'll get the first part of the argument in a minute. Let's talk about the weed stuff. The weed stuff is insanity. It's completely unjustifiable, um, cartoonishly punitive nonsense. You are going to ruin a guy's finances and careers over an infraction you can't even prove they did. What? I, I mean, I'm, I, I don't even know what to say. It is totally reprehensible behavior on the part of that commission. Unjustifiable, frankly unethical, totally ridiculous behavior on their part on this marijuana issue. In, in, completely insanity. Outside the bounds of rational... Um, um, you know, uh, parameters, just, just totally mad, total madness, total madness. And frankly, in my opinion, unethical, you're going to, you're going to damage a guy's or woman's life over something like this, not their career, not take a little bit of a timeout junior. No, you're going to damage someone's career with this and you're going to do it with a test. You can't even prove makes them guilty. I mean, if that isn't the most reprehensible thing a government body can do, I don't know what is. It's one thing for you to be in the military, and they just want to see if you've used at all. They don't care about the windows. And they have some sort of draconian policy where, you know, you get a page 11 and admin set and everything else. That's one thing. It is quite another for them to then back up the WADA distinctions regarding testing, which they did. And then go on top of that and, and add these additional penalties, penalties for marijuana. It is the most reprehensible thing I think I've seen them do to date. And boy, that is a frankly uh, uh, impressive feat. Now, here's a couple problems with it. Besides what I've already mentioned, the second problem is people say, "Well, it's just weed. It's not the it's not the other stuff." First of all, do you understand the significance of what we're doing, talking about here? If they actually did the blood test and they did this, it would still be reprehensible and frankly unethical. 
that they're doing it with a test that they can't even use to prove wrongdoing, that should be illegal. How is that legal? How is it legal to have your money taken away uh, and all of these workplace suspensions put in place over something that is scientifically fraudulent? How is that even legal? That is total madness to me. It's just a start. The second part is, this is not like the first time someone has, a, has, has, has addressed this argument to them. Nick Diaz's lawyers tried this argument and a court didn't back it up. And I understand that. Whether a court didn't back it up is irrelevant to the scientific fact of things. Courts may decide what they want to decide. This is a real thing. I'm not making it up. They are using a test that can't prove what it claims it can prove. Just, just not, it's, not, it's not up for debate. So if they're willing to do that, what government body is willing to use a test that can't definitively prove something and then penalize you to an extent that is almost comically punitive? If they're willing to do that there, well, what else are they willing to do? Right? So that's the issue here. Everyone's like, well, it's just about marijuana. No, it is not. It is about a government body that is willing to do things in a hugely, hugely punitive way on the back of something that is scientifically fraudulent. That means they're willing to do probably all sorts of crazy things. Right? Okay. That's one problem. Or actually, it's several problems. The other problems involved here are, you know, these, I mean, you know, massive suspensions for, for um, you know, and, and it goes to varying degrees, whether it's a diuretic or it's steroids. Look, I'm not here to say we need to have steroids in the sports. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not, there's a glib response where it's like, well, let's just stop testing altogether. I'm not saying that is the response either. I don't find that to be very, I mean, maybe we'll get to that point in the future if we really find that we can't put a handle on things with deter use. Here, here's what I'm concerned about with this. I never thought that the penalties were the problem. I thought it was the rate of um, testing, the amount of testing that happened. If you test guys more and you believe there's actually a problem out there, you're going to get more positives. You're going to get more punishments. You're going to get guys who are just getting get caught much more frequently. That's, I think that's the idea here. But to then raise the level of testing, and by the way, if you go back to that Vanderlei Silva court case, um, the athletic commission overturned what had happened to him, but upheld the right of the commission to do out-of-competition testing, and they didn't define the limits of it. So like, they can do out-of-competition testing. That's totally, that's totally above board. So now you have that, um, and you know, three years, depending on some of the penalties, where you get your first offense, three years, you're out of the sport. You're going to keep a guy out of the sport if he's 21, he's an idiot, and he made a mistake until the time that, you know, the, the same amount of time that Dominic Cruz was gone. You are going to ruin careers doing that. And then maybe a guy who made a one-time mistake. It may not be some habitual user who's been roiding up for 15 years. It may just be a guy who one time was like, ugh. That's not deterring use. That's the de that's de deterring involvement in the sport. And this is the other part of the problem. Look, you're, you're making all these penalties and people think, well, these penalties will surely deter someone from um, doing these sorts of prohibited substances. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. That's what the drug war taught us, right? 
that the more penalties you add to something, the more it proves people won't want to go after it. Or it proves that people want to go after it no matter what, because it's more of a health issue than anything else. Um, and the more penalties you add, just the more you make this entire thing a disgusting spectacle. I have a hard time believing that all these extra penalties will actually deter use. Unless the whole idea is to have so many people on suspension so long that they can't compete. I was fine with the penalties as they were. What I wanted to see and what I thought we were moving towards was just more testing. More tests all the time. Let's get them. Get them out there. Keep those penalties as they are, but let's have a lot more tests. And you get these guys who, now listen, if you're a three-time offender, okay, fine. We can have a different conversation about it. But this idea that, like, and it's not just UFC guys are going to be affected by this in Nevada. It's going to be anyone who hosts an MMA show in Nevada that the commission decides to test. And you're going to get some 19-year-old kid who got bad advice at a gym, and he's going to pop for this, and he's going to sit for three years. I mean, on what planet does that make sense? On what planet does that make sense? You're like, well, you get suspended four years to the Olympics. Yeah, that's because only every, the competition's only every four years. Right? They don't suspend you for four Olympic cycles unless you do something terrible. So, you know, we need to have a conversation about what is the purpose of having penalties that stiff? Do you actually believe it's going to deter use? And if you do, show me the science and the research behind that. Because I don't know that there's a whole lot that exists. There's not a lot of evidence to suggest that insanely punitive measures, absent the other rewards that come with uh, professional sports, tampers down on overall use. Maybe there is. Show it to me. Show it to me. But I think what we're about to do is embark on a situation where we're having uh, we're, we're profoundly affecting guys' careers, and we may do it to people who don't deserve this kind of treatment. We may do it to people who do. But that that I just feel like there's so much problematic with what they did. So much problematic. <coughs> All right. Um, now, the question is, what will other state commissions do about it? You realize that, like, California is moving in the opposite direction. If you pop in California on one of their tests, <laughs> depending on what level it is, I think, they fine you the, the cost of the test and, like, 30-day suspension. They don't care doesn't mean anything. Why would they care? It doesn't, and you got people, I mean, you got, you got the Nevada Commission, they're going to fine you hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe, maybe even millions, depending on how things go, over marijuana. Over marijuana. You, you mean, to, like, this is why the divorcing of logic to me seems weird. Well, the same people who came up with this rule, they, 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 they must be totally uh, in the right to come up with these other rules. No, they have... They have, in my opinion, demonstrated they are utterly incapable of coming up with a rational rule set. The fact that the marijuana one is the most obviously egregious to me is uh, uh, maybe true, but it is, it's not like, well, this is all great and this is all bad. No, it's all bad. It's just varying degrees of bad or, at a minimum, ineffective. Ineffective slash, you know, cruel. More testing, I think, is the answer. Not you know, relatively same amount of testing, but then insane punishments. And now you have to wonder, is the, I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder, is the UFC going to borrow? Because they really, they model themselves on the, what the Nevada Commission does. Are they going to model themselves on what the Nevada Commission does now for these kind of penalties? UFC is going to take away, you know, when they do overseas matches, they're going to take away, you know, more than 50% of a guy's purse for weed? 
I don't know. I don't, I mean, I just don't, I, I really hope not. I really hope not. I hope they think more, you know, there's sensible people who run uh, that organization and who work there. And I would be very surprised if that happens, but I, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I really, I, God, I hope not. Do you think Dana White is trying to make Conor McGregor the UFC's version of Mayweather? He is very flashy and arrogant. He will be a huge cash cow if he beats Aldo. He'll easily be the biggest star in the UFC. You can tell Dana is rooting for him to beat Aldo. I don't know about all that now. But um, do you think the only way Rum... Oh, let's, let's answer that. Well, first of all, there's no such thing as a UFC's version of Mayweather. Mayweather is his own man in every capacity whatsoever. He could never work with a brand. He bought himself out of his top rank deal. Um, so he could be his own man and worked for a time with Golden Boy and then moved on beyond that. Like he is so much his own guy. It can never happen with a brand where the brand is, you know, like would you think Mayweather would ever sign a contract where he gets X amount to show and X amount to win? We're talking about a guy who's undefeated. Never. It would, it would, you go to a Mayweather event, you buy concessions and he gets some of your money. Like there's no, there's no possible way. There is no such thing. As a UFC's Mayweather, the two the two worlds one can't happen in the other world. It just doesn't work that way. But he is flashy and he is arrogant. I think he wants. Uh, look, I don't know that there is any really uh, you know common guy you can look at and say um, McGregor is this version of that. I think they're very much trying to make him as a modern elite prize fighter that they use to knock down doors and make things happen for them in um, the English speaking part of Europe. And maybe beyond that as well, you know. Um, he's an, he's a hugely important guy for them. Hugely important guy. And he should be. Do you think the only way that Rumble beats DC is if he KOs him and make him respect his power early? I think DC is the more complete fighter and will ragdoll Rumble and win by sub in the fourth round. He was undefeated at heavyweight, so he destroyed a bigger and harder punchers than Rumble. I'm not so sure about that. I think Rumble could punch as hard as any of those guys at heavyweight, first of all. Second of all, um, I don't know if he'll ragdoll Rumble, but again, I mentioned this before. I went back in, on Metric and I found all the times that Rumble was taken down in, the, in his previous UFC tenure before World Series of Fighting. And what I found was that I think virtually all of them came from punching inside the clinch. And I, I used, you guys saw me ask Cain Velasquez, true or false, will the winner of this fight be determined by who won in the clinch? And Cain Velasquez said, true. And so that's my assessment as well. It's like if, if, if Daniel Cormier can't either take him down or threaten to take down or can't even get inside, boy, it's going to be a bad night for him. But by contrast, if he can and Rumble has a hard time keeping the guy off of him and has given up things positionally in the scramble as a consequence, well, then he's the one that's going to have a hard time. Um, to me, that really sort of defines it. I have a hard time believing that one shot's going to KO Daniel Cormier early from the outside, maybe maybe in the third or fourth round or something like that, but but not early. UFC's B League. Should the UFC create a second tier league? In that way, they could justify signing guys like Aaron Pico and Ed Ruth and let them develop instead of throwing them to the wolves. It might even aid in letting guys like CM Punk get a couple of easy wins, and then it would probably more fair. It'd be more fair to the fans. They can throw all of those tough China guys on that B League. It's something that people have said a lot to me. Actually, I got an email from a guy because um, I wrote about Royston Wee in my Signal to Noise column. 
you know, I just don't think the guy has any business fighting in the UFC. It doesn't mean he's a bad guy or a loser or anything else like that. He just is not – there's a, there's, a, there's a standard of excellence that needs to be kept, and it's, you know um, – Standard of excellence does not mean top 10. It just means, are you good enough to fight at this level? Are you, are, you, are you good enough to deserve a chance to fight at this level? And Royston Wee is so infinitely far. Now, he's not the only one, of course, but he's so far beyond it. Like, why is he here? Well, I got an email from a guy who is in, um, I think he's in the Philippines. And he was saying, dude, I'm with you. I understand what's happening. He goes, but guys like Royston Wee are really popular here. You know, uh, let, me, let me see if I can... Where was it? Anyway, he was saying, like, guys like Western, we are really popular here. Like, you know, UFC is very mainstream in places like the Philippines, and having local guys like that is working for them. The problem, he said, he noted, was that the fans really hate it when local guys lose. And I heard something similar in Mexico. Um, one of the uh, – I ran into a Mexican journalist who covers MMA and boxing at the Mayweather Pacquiao fight. He was telling me something similar. He was saying, you know, obviously, Cain Velasquez is a big deal and super important. He goes, but, you know – like Goito Perez, like he's not as popular as the guys from tough uh, Latin America, the guys from the Mexico season, not Mexico versus South America. The guys apparently who are the Mexican ones are hugely popular there, but they don't fight well at all. Like they're very low level relative to the highest standard anyway. So what do you do? You're essentially trying to bridge two worlds. You have this common standard of excellence. Oh, we have all the best fighters in the world, or you know, 95, 90% of them, whatever the case may be. And then you want to have the, the ability to enter these emerging markets. And having the hometown guys there works, except Royston Wee is so bad, he can't even beat other terrible fighters. So, so what do you do? Like You have two different kinds of customers with two completely different expectations. Well, not completely different, but not, very much non-overlapping expectations. And interests, you know, a second a second tier makes sense. Except the UFC, they have shown like when they had WEC or when they had Strike Force, you know, it's just hard for them to give the same kind of attention to that secondary show. They're very much good at the UFC is great at projecting their own brand. They're not so great at projecting their own brand and another brand at the same time. And even if it was something like UFC Light or UFC Challengers or or whatever the case may be, it's just hard to believe that those guys would do as well. And in effect, you're getting shows like that anyway. You know what I mean? Um, they, those UFC challenger shows, would they be headlined by other top challengers, or would they be headlined by somebody they could really headline a card? You know, I don't know. Um, but just given the experience that we've seen with UFC, again, they're amazing at projecting their own brand, but I just don't feel like they can play both levels where they project their own brand and another brand, even when they own that brand, at the same time, it just it just has a lot of it hasn't, it hasn't historically worked out. The pride deal, of course, was its own separate thing that didn't work out. Um, but you get the idea. So I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is there because you have completely different, divergent interests. You have this a custom fan base where people are like, "Dude, what is this? These guys are so far below the level of what I'm used to watching UFC for." I watch for the Frankie Edgar's. I watch for the Luke Rockholds and the Ronda Rousey's. Uh, and the Cain Velasquez's. This is why I watch. What is that? You know, people were clamoring to see the prelims because you'd have guys who were elite um, or on the come up to the elite fighting on the prelims. They weren't seeking it out. So the UFC could put hometown guys on the markets are trying to get into and having some success in. It's just a totally different thing now. So I don't know how you bridge those two worlds. I don't know how you make it work except to say maybe the people overseas just have to deal with the fact that their guys suck and they're going to lose a lot. 
and maybe the guys and the fans at home uh, in North America and more accustomed UFC audiences have to do with the fact that there's just a lot more bad fighters in these cards in addition to all the good fighters that they already have. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there. Someone asked, who's worse at this point, Jones or Mayweather? And I said Mayweather by far. I don't even know how you ask that question. Jones has done some bad things in his life, and he's made some mistakes, no doubt about it. Mayweather has uh, is a serial batterer of women um, and is insanely powerful. I mean, he runs Las Vegas, runs it. You know, the commission going out of their way to... to uh, you know, not asking him any really hard questions to give him his license, getting his jail sentence put off so he could bring money to the city of Las Vegas. I mean, this is a this is not just a bad guy. This is a bad guy with serious power. John Jones isn't even remotely on the same level. Thank God. Uh, okay, fighter sponsorships outside the cage. Luke on the MMA Hour. Travis Brown made a great point that how his sponsors are sticking around, and while he will take a hit on fight night, the sponsors that support him are for the long run. It's about making money over time versus on fight night. How many fighters are really looking at it this way versus talk, taking Twitter and emphasizing the big hit they are taking something on fight night? I don't know that's a very good point. I don't think very many sponsors are going to do that. Um, now, to the UFC's point, they've said, well, look, we're not saying you can't have sponsors. You just can't have sponsors during fight week. This is like any other league except all those other leagues, again. They have unions or associations that give them a much bigger deal, uh, much better terms on a much bigger piece of the pie, right? I mean, that Nike deal is a billion dollar plus um, for the NFL. It's a billion dollar deal for the jersey. And and the athletes get a big, big cut of that. So there's that. Um, but look, I, I just think all this is just beating around the bush. And none of these guys... Look, if Travis Brown has sponsors outside the cage that want to stay with him, great, awesome, good for him. I hope everyone does. But um, I think the UFC is right when they make a point and they say, we have the right to say you can't wear your sponsors during the course of these events. Um, and when you don't and your sponsors go away, or some of them anyway, this proves that all they were really, all the sponsors were really doing was trying to put, you know, a logo on your back on an opportunity that we made available. This is this is a market that we created. We deserve to benefit from it. I don't think they're wrong. I think they're right. I think that is totally true. How could it not be true? If if the if the UFC, you can say, oh, well, they shouldn't be able to put the restriction in place. Okay, should shouldn't be whatever. Put that aside. They did. There's a restriction in place now. Boom, it's there. Now, how many sponsors are going to drop off? Okay, that proves that what they were monetizing was something the UFC had created. It seems very straightforward logic to me. The UFC has every right to at least say, we think we should be able to monetize that, and we, sh we think we should be able to monetize that at a rate that we're not getting now. Okay, I think, I, <laughs> I think it's a pretty fair argument, actually. The problem is... The fighters can also say, right, well, it's one thing to close that off, but what if we just close off our services altogether? Now what? Well, now what you find is that um, you have a bigger problem on your hands, right? So we're not talking about drastic changes here. 
again, two, three extra sponsors on top of the Reebok thing might be bring people back to where they were or even more. You never know. You never know what it could do. But the point being is the UFC is going to – this is why I'm talking about UFC is acting in good faith. If that's their argument about why they're doing this and they believe they should benefit from the market, who could say they're wrong? They're not wrong. The only problem is the fighters aren't asserting their interests into that discussion into any kind of forceful way. And so as a consequence, it looks bad to some of the fighters and may have a real-world bad impact on many of the fighters. But they don't do anything about it. So the UFC is supposed to wait around for them? You know, I, I, for years, I've been like totally sympathetic to the fighters for years. I've been very sympathetic to them. I thought that there was a lot of times where, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know how it's possible they can just sign away their likeness rights and all, all sorts of other things. But I think what this Reebok thing has really showed me is that um, I'm not mad at them for it. I'm not even like disappointed in for it. It's their lives, but I am just not willing much anymore to be deeply sympathetic to them if they themselves will they just don't they just don't do anything about it they just don't do anything about it um and if they are that unwilling you know to even to even if you make a claim and someone says it's not true and you're not even willing to say that it is you're not willing to say anything you're not willing to say anything and if you're not why should any fan feel sympathy for you? Why? UFC has a point that they are creating these opportunities and they have a right to benefit from them. You also could make the point that that's true, but uh, your participation is integral to making the whole process work. And therefore, collectively, if we don't, um, the whole thing collapses. But you don't. You don't do anything. So the UFC is just going to do what they want to do because it's their right to do it. Why should I have sympathy for you? Why should any fan have sympathy for you? You just take what is given and then uh, sometimes complain about the hardships that come with it. Well, I don't know how that's how life works. If, it's just so crazy to me. It's just so crazy. All right, let's keep going here. Uh, good question. Fight Pass, BJJ, and wrestling. Good morning, Luke. I heard that there will be an increase in BJJ and wrestling at the Fan Expo this year with the advent and popularity of Metamorphosis and EBI. I was wondering about the possibility of the UFC designing their own and including live BJJ and wrestling on Fight Pass. The platform is struggling for, it's their words, not mine, the platform is struggling for original content and including events like ADCC or Beat the Streets would be super compelling for a customer like me. Beat the Streets is going to Flow Wrestling, which means there is no chance I will ever cover it. Man, Flow Wrestling. I, I could not say more bad things about them. They could position events like this as a sort of farm system of talent and also drive a whole new customer base away from sites like Flow Wrestling and onto their platform. Uh, I have to think it would be a fairly cheap to produce as well. It's one I'd like to get some more answers to, and I will. Um, yeah, I have, I, I'm not sure how I feel about it. On the one hand, I think you're right. Like, Here's what I would like to see. Look, I'd like to see EBI 
stay with Budo videos. I like Budo videos. I like the work that they do. I think they do the IBJJF major tournaments really well. I always pay for the pay-per-view. I like there being a lot of different companies for all these different outfits to choose from. What I would like to see is one of the things UFC is doing for this expo, which really caught my attention, was like ultimate the ultimate like wrestling, uh, what do they call it? Ultimate wrestling championship or something like that. Ultimate wrestling something. They're gonna have like a wrestling tournament in there. And I don't know, I don't know who's in it just yet. They're gonna have a BJJ tournament, several BJJ tournaments. Here's what I would say. Um if companies like Metamoris and EBI and Beat the Streets, they want to go to Flow Wrestling, they want to go to Budo Videos, they want to do their own proprietary streaming, I have no problem with that. In fact, I kind of prefer it. I wouldn't want all the companies working for one distributor. But what I would say is if the UFC wanted to get involved in creating more of their own shows like and, and using things like the Expo as a launching point, I would be all in favor of that, man. Totally in favor of that. And they've put on, they've used Grappler's Quest in the past, I think. I'm not sure who they're partnering with this time. Um, but there's a ton of events they're putting on. Those should be on Fight Pass, man. Those should totally be on Fight Pass. And again, that's not exactly the answer to your question. But I guess what I'm saying is, I don't know how they would do amateur wrestling because USA Wrestling just seems to be totally in bed um, with uh, you know Flow Wrestling at this point, which is the most lamentable thing on earth. But... Certainly, there might be some BJJ organizations, smaller ones, like a Grappler's Quest that might be willing to do that, or UFC staging their own events occasionally, um, getting with five grappling maybe. Like I said, I wouldn't mind one or two people or companies getting involved. I wouldn't want to see everyone on the same platform. That'd be good for the customer. I don't know how good for the industry would be. But to your point, if the UFC wanted to stage their own original events, I think that would be awesome, or maybe have one or so partners that's not spoken for that whose content you can't already get. Like I can get Metamorphosis content. If I wanted to pay the money to Flow Wrestling, I could get their content. If I wanted to pay the money for uh, EBI, I can pay Budo Videos for the content. It's there. But if there's a company that's not airing, I mean, there's a lot of grappling events that happen all over the country that don't get their stuff aired or aired properly. If they want to partner with them, I think that'd be cool. You know, if they could, li- they had a deal to like live stream five grappling events, but then five grappling got to keep the stuff to post on YouTube after the fact. You know, whatever the case may be, I think that would be really, really cool. You know, if I don't have access to it now, uh, and I remember, uh, was it the World uh, World Jiu-Jitsu League? The one I wrote the article on, God, the name, I can't get it right. Um, the one Bushesha does work for, and there's the brainchild of Higgin Machado. Um, you know, if it doesn't stream live now, put them on Fight Pass. Have, have that kind of a deal. Did I skip one? Uh, following Cajun Johnson's win last weekend, he said that he struggled to get a successful leg lock in the fight because in training, his teammates tap at the first hint of pain. In a fight, opponents obviously aren't quick to tap. This is one of the reasons why leg lock attempts are so often unsuccessful in MMA. They're unsuccessful for a number of reasons. I think the leg lock game in jiu-jitsu generally has been bad, but is getting better. In MMA, it's really bad, but getting better. It's why leg lock specialists like Bulharis, you know, you can say whatever you want. He didn't, you know, get... I mean, he didn't wash out of the UFC. He got cut. He got cut on a win. Um, and then he goes and tears John Fitch's knee to pieces, right? Um, he's just a specialist. There's no reason. Alan Belcher beat him. Okay, but, uh, you know, he's he beaten good guys with a fairly, fairly simple skill set. 
that's gotten better over time without getting more diverse. So, you know, consider that. I, I just think that um, um, it's just a portion of training that hasn't come along yet. There is something to be said for the fact that people will tap a little bit easier in the room than they will in competition, but that's true of almost all locks. That's not just exclusive to leg locks. Guys are going to probably, you know, there's times where if you lock out an arm bar in training, let's say they're gripping their gi right here, right? And you're yanking on it and you're yanking on it and you're yanking on it and you finally get it and you lock out before you can even lock out, they tap, you know, it's common, super common. Um, same with, same with chokes. They don't fight chokes. Like sometimes you see guys go out in training from chokes. It's usually cause they mistimed the tap, not because they were like, F it. If I can't get out, I'm just going to let myself go. You don't really see that. So like, it's not exclusive to leg locks. That's, that's, that's true submission wide. There might be a little more apprehension around leg locks because of the unfamiliar, unfamiliarity of the game. But that speaks to my previous point about um, the leg lock game generally just not being as good as it can be or should be or will be. I think it's steadily improving. I think you're seeing guys like Eddie Cummins, the Wolverine, just mowing people down. Um, he's got a great all-around game, but he's sort of noted that, like, look, the leg lock game is so far behind everything else. It's just more readily available for me to take this stuff. So he wins on arm bars, you know. But you know, if your leg lock defense is not where it needs to be, you're you're gonna pay. Let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. Will we start seeing UFC move away from putting big fights on in Vegas, despite their connections there? I don't know. I think you mean in relationship to the NSAC stuff. I don't know. Uh, any news about the managers meeting in Vegas? No, but I don't expect anything about it. I don't expect anything. Ellenberger versus Wonderboy, who you got and why? I love this fight. It's such a great fight. Um, man, Stephen Thompson has really improved things. I think his movement has gotten better. Um, his distancing for MMA has gotten better. I think his shot selection in terms of the weapons he uses in MMA has gotten more streamlined, but at the same time, more effective. Um, I don't think Ellenberger's done by any stretch. I certainly think he's the more superior uh, or he's the superior wrestler. Um, certainly he's fought better guys, probably better against the cage and on top. So to me, this is a question of if um, – Ellenberger stands, he's going to get chewed to pieces, but but if he can find a way on the inside, he can do a lot of awful things. I mean, look what Matt Brown did on top to Wonderboy Thompson. Like, he mauled him. I I think that Jake Ellenberger's ground and pound is as deadly as anyone uh, when he's on his game. So so I like that fight a lot, man. I think it, tells, it will tell a lot about both guys. Is Wonderboy really going to round the corner and beat someone as credentialed and as good as, as, as Ellenberger? Or are the stories of Ellenberger's demise greatly exaggerated? That fight is, is going to help us uh, figure that out. Oh, do you think that Kane will ever drop down to 205 to be a two-division champion? You know, when I saw him in Vegas, I wondered if it was possible. Like, if you ask me who was bigger, just, just walking around weight, and I could be wrong about this, but I don't, I don't think so. Who's bigger walking around, you know, let's say they, they, they fight's over, they have a two-week vacation, who balloons back up, right? Ryan Bader or Cain Velasquez? I would say Ryan Bader is way bigger, way bigger. 
like not just bigger, like way bigger. Ryan Bader is a monstrous human being. Okay. Um, he is huge. So if Bader can make it, why couldn't Velasquez? I don't know. Maybe he doesn't want to make it. Maybe he doesn't feel like it's necessary. I don't, I don't know. I think more. it's more likely that because he's the heavyweight champ and there's a little bit of value there to that, to that name, not just to the title, people will go to him, but we'll see. Uh, although Weidman has shown an iron shin so far, he tends to get hit quite a bit. Will this be a problem against Belfort? Isn't the, this, this is the uh, intriguing aspect of the fight. We don't know what kind of Belfort is going to show up here, man. Like you've looked at his physique on the uh, Embedded series. It was not necessarily a peak physique I've seen from him even recently. But physique does not tell the entire question by any stretch of the imagination. So... Um, you would think that Wyman would have the skills with his wrestling to make things very difficult for Belfort. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. I, if I was thinking about potential problems, that would be a thing I would point to maybe early, but after some pretty, pretty quick fitting in, it would not be something that I would highlight as an enduring issue. So I'm not saying no, but if I'm ranking issues, that's not at the top of the list. Let's see. So it says if NSAC has legal jurisdiction over unlicensed fighters, which is also something that that court case with Vandalay uh, suggested, why not Overeem's win over Lesnar, not a no contest? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, let's see. Go back to the chat. Chris Weidman popularity. So I don't live in the USA, but could you please explain why Chris Weidman isn't the most popular fighter in the UFC? He isn't boring. He has a clean record. The All-American and things like that. Does he maybe need to drive drunk <laughs> or get charged with domestic violence? Apparently, that seems the mentality for the American people to become pound for pound as an outsider. This is the second email I've gotten today about my haters. He also goes on about my haters. Um no, I look, um, if you're an American, I try not to get offended at this question. I would not, if, you're, if you don't live in the United States, the drunk driving or domestic violence, first of all, does not make you a good person. It may make you a flawed, may make you a bad person, but it doesn't make you a good person. Now, that doesn't mean it won't reduce your, uh, it can have bad effects in your career, but it certainly makes you more visible, right? Because just more naturally speaking, you're, you're on news reports more. People are aware of you more. Um, it certainly happens that way. Um, but no, I don't think that would help his case necessarily with his sponsors or with the UFC. I think what would help him is just sort of continuing what he's been doing. I think the major issue for Weidman has been, um, you know, regular competition, getting out there on time, staying healthy, 
you know, the more scalps he's able to collect, the bigger and better things he's able to then move on towards. So I think that's the issue. Look, if MMA gets legalized in New York and they do this Luke Rockhold versus Chris Weidman fight at MSG, I think you might see both guys say, take a noticeable turn in a positive direction in terms of their popularity and especially the winner of that outcome. So I don't think need folks need to look at the American media as one where it reward. I mean, it, it's hard to explain. They're not rewarding you necessarily. There is the byproduct of getting more attention. And there is a saying that all press is good press. I don't think that's quite true. But what I would say is while it raises your visibility, it also comes with a fair amount of drawbacks that can uh, severely hamper your career. Someone says, Luke, this question is brought to you by Corn Nuts. All right. The UFC is trying to become more professional looking with the Reebok deal. With this deal, are they also eliminating the ads littered all over the octagon and plastered onto anything they can, i.e. the time clock? Will Reebok be the only sponsor in the octagon or just the only one of the fighters? I have looked for clarification to this. I have not found any yet. As soon as I do, I'll let you know. But to me, it would be sort of interesting that, um, look, the argument, look, let's just be real. The argument about getting Reebok as opposed to letting the guys do um, they're all their own sponsors is not about getting rid of a NASCAR look. They may say that in public, but that's just not true. And I don't know why I don't know why they say that because look, I've said it from the beginning. I will say it again. The UFC totally has a point, and they are kind of right, if not more than kind of right, when they say um, the many opportunities by which fighters make money in terms of sponsorships are opportunities that we create. And if we don't create them, they cease to exist. They can't replicate them outside of UFC um, uh, opportunities. UFC is not wrong when they say that. I don't know how many times I've got to figure That is a true statement. That's a true statement. They, they, they have a strong claim to that fact. They really and truly honest to God do. And that's what I think this is about. They believe that this is something they create. And hey, if this is something we create, why shouldn't we have more say over who benefits from it? I don't know though that's that's that, that that's very objectionable. It would just be nice, I think, if the fighters also had a say and say, well, look, we work better together, let's get a fair cut of all things and then move forward hand in hand. I think that's the ultimate outcome here. But I don't think the UFC is at all wrong when they say you're not that popular, your your appearance on our shows and our events are what make your ability to generate this kind of money possible. Now, obviously, there's there's limits to that. Some people can't have sponsors outside, and some people get more money for their space inside the UFC's offerings anyway. So it's not a that doesn't affect everyone the same, but you get the general idea. But I, I just don't feel like did, did you ever hear anyone complain about the NASCAR stuff? I mean, maybe like the Dennis Hallman, you know, um, training mask, banana hammock situation. All right, maybe that, but. All right. Yeah, the Tito Ortiz of the Reebok deal claimed by Schaub. Love him or hate him, Tito Ortiz is one of the first fighters to clash heads with Zufa over fighter pay and other similar issues. Has there ever been a situation more indicative of Zufa's ability to control the dialogue than this one? We have a current fighter remaining silent in order to not become like a past fighter who refused to remain silent. Let me say something about Tito Ortiz. You could do worse than having his career. If you look at all the careers that every MMA fighter's ever had, the idea that people can mock Tito Ortiz's career is mostly laughable. Tito Ortiz is in the 1% of careers. 
And that's with promoters bashing him. That's with his own mistakes. That's with his own, um, you know, poor decisions. That's with some luck. That's with all the bad losses that he's had. He's still up here. This dude is still in Bellator on national TV all the time, making six-figure paydays. Like, we're going to mock Tito Ortiz, really? We have a current fighter remaining, blah, 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 blah. Tito Ortiz is a living legend in MMA ob- obscurity. Tito Ortiz is a legend living in MMA obscurity. I wouldn't say that. Hated by fans and executives. That's partly true. Largely because uh, Dana White has publicly buried him so many times. That's also not entirely true. He's also buried himself a little bit. But he is also the first fighter to stand up to Zufo on behalf of the fighters. Isn't this a sad situation? I think Tito deserves more respect and Shab shouldn't be afraid to speak up. Well, Shab can do what he wants. He is a grown man. Um, and I've already done this situation a thousand times. But I just find it comical now when you see careers come and go and you see what Tito Ortiz did and how far he got amidst all the negativity, amidst all of the, the his own boneheaded mistakes, among all the times he got slandered fairly and unfairly by promoters. Look at old Tito Ortiz, 40 years old and making six-figure paydays, UFC Hall of Famer, um, drives a Phantom Rolls Royce, and people have got the nerve to make fun of him, man. That is funny. That is very, very funny. The CEO of CrossFit made some surprising remarks about his partnership with Reebok. I saw this. Did you guys see this on 60 Minutes? Didn't say a lot. Uh, Luke, I was wondering what your thoughts were on the comments of the CEO of CrossFit uh, in terms of what he made about their deal with Reebok. Now, he has a 10-year deal with Reebok. They're five years into it, and this is what he said on 60 Minutes. Quote, I'd like to see Reebok sold to someone young, fresh, excited, and willing to enter the modern era of things. Is this something that should concern the UFC? I don't know. Uh well, it's hard to look. I'm not in the CrossFit world. I'm not exactly sure because, like, if you look at the CrossFit Games, it's sponsored by Reebok. Their locals are everywhere. CrossFit has, you know, deals with Reebok for shoes and those weird socks that CrossFit people wear up to their knees, like it's 19, you know, 40s era uh, basketball uh, and shorts and all kinds of training apparel. Um, but I don't do CrossFit, so I don't know exactly what his claim to be the problem is. Here's what I can say. There's a Forbes article about it. Uh, let's see if I can pull it up real quick. Here. Um, Reebok's not doing too well. I don't know if folks know that. Um, real quickly. Here we go. Gl- uh, Glassman's a guy's name. Um, Greg Glassman, the creator of CrossFit. Glassman's comments are far from the exception. Adidas AG has seen mounting losses. I guess they own Reebok. In March, fourth quarter losses came in at $155 million compared with a loss of $10 million for the same period of the year before, according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, $10 million. Adidas purchased Reebok in 2006 to try and boost sales in the United States, but that's been far from the case. Fourth quarter sales were just 1% over the prior year. Um, quote, I definitely see for Adidas and for Reebok that the growth path is forward. Once the CEO said on the call, um, anyway, they say Adidas should hold on to it, but that Reebok's been in a bit of trouble. All right, I got to get out of here because I've gone over my time limit. I will, uh, I'll post this um, on uh, Stitcher or on iTunes. 
Uh, follow me on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Luke T Sports, on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas, and email me at Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. See you guys later. Bye.